This is Guru Live. I'm Rihanna Dillon and we're with the award-winning Australian director Justin Curzel. He of Snowtown and last year's adaptation of Macbeth starring Michael Fassbender and coming soon the blockbuster adaptation of video game Assassin's Creed. Justin, hello. Hello. Um, what message are you going to try and get across to our aspiring young filmmakers in the audience today? Um, well, I just wanted to kind of talk about point of view, point of view in cinema and kind of how that really drives a narrative and story and I guess it's something that I've just realised lately is extremely important and so I was, it was really just kind of going through what were films that inspired me and, and where was the point of view of the character that uh, made me excited about being a filmmaker. And obviously today is all about, you know, imparting advice onto a younger audience. What advice would you have given your younger self? Probably just to relax more and not be so sort of ambitious with the idea of achieving things and, and, and really just uh, embrace the, the watching and the doing of, uh, of filmmaking. Justin, thank you. Good luck and I can't wait to hear your talk. <coughs> Sorry, I play the first clip. <laughs> I should have given you a warning. <laughs> <laughs> so so that film scared the shit out of me when I was um when I was I think I think my parents let me watch that when I was about 9 10 and my daughters are obsessed with kind of uh wanting to watch that film as well because they've heard about it. It, what, it. This wasn't the film that made me want to be a filmmaker, but it is the film that I, you know, still to this day, especially living in Australia, go into the beach. And that shot underneath going towards the boy's legs it, it plays in my head when I'm supposed to be kind of enjoying a, you know, a Saturday dip in Bondi. So it's, it's, it's kind of the power of this film um, is still with me in a very visceral way, an immersive way. And, and, I, and I think it's sort of, you know, from, from everyone I've spoken to, Jaws is uh, a, a film that's kind of etched in their sort of subconscious. And I think a lot of it has to do with something I'm really interested in talking to you about, which is point of view. And it's point of view of, of character. Um, and it's something I've become a little obsessed about um, recently uh, while editing Assassin's Creed um, about, you know, your your films are told through a character and usually that character has something that they are struggling against. You are, as a filmmaker, doing everything possible to make the audience experience, you know, that, that story through that character's point of view. And I don't mean literal point of view. I, 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 you know, I don't mean sort of seeing, you know, having a camera kind of look towards another character and pretending that it's the, the that it's your main character i'm talking about every single uh frame every single lens choice you make every single piece of music that you put over this or sound design has all got to do with what you want an audience to feel through that character so brody's you know his whole character is 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 based on fear of going into the water in that in that clip, you never see the shark, so it's so it's all told through his point of view. I mean, even the fact that he all those kind of side wide shots, everyone's coming out of the water, and Brody's just on the edge of it. You know, the 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 point the point of view of what he imagines is underneath the water, with those shots coming up towards the kids, um, those over the shoulder shots of of Brody looking past the two men out to a kind of still ocean with a kind of boy just bobbing 
you know, in, in, in the distance. It's all got to do with the anxiety and fear of making you experience what Brody's experiencing. And, that, and that's kind of, that, that's a thing that I've kind of come across that I think subconsciously you understand as a filmmaker. I think that you, you know, you do get caught up in style and you do get caught up in story. Um, and you do have a feeling for how a scene should go or where a camera should go. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's also about interrogating every single moment where the camera should be that's telling the story of your character um, and, and what you're trying to say within that. Um, so that kind of, that film kind of started me off and it, it comes on, you know, every six months, you know, that film will come on and I'll just start watching it. And I think Spielberg is just a master at putting you in the psychology of, of a character and without showing you the kind of uh, monster like you kind of did in this. I mean, even that last shot there of the kind of floating, um, mat that the boy was um, uh, on, you know, that, that, that's the kind of lasting image of Brody's that then kind of propels the kind of dread and threat throughout the rest of the film. Um, and it's something that I kind of want to talk a little bit in regards to my films and how, they've, how that point of view of character has informed me. And at times when I didn't know um, that the answers were about really putting the audience into, into point of view to solve narrative problems in my films or, or to uh, make you experience the film. The, the other day I was, I was um, editing Assassin's Creed and working with this amazing editor, Chris Telferson, who edited Moneyball and um, Capote and, and, and even um, Gummo and Kids. And we were talking about exposition in the film and, and how there was a, an, an almost about a story to get across. And then Chris said something really interesting. He said, I just feel as though the audience in this moment and scene needs to experience it, you know, needs to experience the, the point of view of the character. And to me, that's just a great example of the difference between kind of literal narrative story and actually experiencing a story. And that to me is where it becomes cinema. So I just wanted to kind of, I was going to today just go through a few other little clips and then sort of back end with Macbeth and Snowtown. Um, and then obviously open it up to you guys for some questions about, I guess, my journey as a filmmaker. I mean, it, it's, um, I came from theatre, then sort of started moving into film through doing music clips and, and, and short films. Um, and then really just lucked out in terms of a story coming my way in regards to Snowtown, which was about a place and a series of events from where I grew up. So I had a very personal and intimate kind of knowledge of that. Um, and then from then on, Macbeth was a, 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 a film that really just sort of landed in my lap in a way. Um, it wasn't something that I was sort of planning or wanting to, to do. So I'll, I'll, I'll be open to kind of talk about that throughout the, through, um, through the Q&A, but um, I just thought I'd go through some sort of clips um, talking about point of view and really kind of looking at kind of what's most interesting about it. So probably my, we've got to uh, this next clip, which is uh, Gallipoli. Um, this is the first time that I sort of discovered Australian film and, and Australian voices and um, this was a very, very powerful kind of moment which inspired me to want to make films. Um, and it's the end of the film, I don't know if you're aware of it, it's Mark Lee, uh, Mel Gibson's character, um, who are both two young Australian soldiers um, caught up in the front in Gallipoli and they are about to uh, go over the, 
trenches to face their kind of fate and destiny. So I'll just play the, you know, and this, this film's directed by an absolute master in Peter Weir. He, I was watching Dead Poet Society the other day and the way he is able to focus on, again, point of view within a frame is, is, is quite astonishing. So I'll play the Gallipoli clip. So this, I mean, it's an incredible, powerful scene, and and but it took me, it took me a long while to kind of work out that the point of view of Mark Lee in this scene, and how much of an effect it has on the finale of this film. It's, it's, it's a character who's desperate throughout the whole film to kind of find his war, you know, to, to leave Australia and to find adventure and to do his duty. And there's something extremely powerful in the ritual of death in, in, in this. I mean, it's, 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 quite, um, it's quite religious in a way, the way Peter Weir's kind of filmed it. There's a dignity in the way each of them say goodbye. The fact that you never go up to the trenches, the camera stays down amongst these kind of final confessional moments between these soldiers who each individually sort of say goodbye or do a gesture, which you can sense in the sound, the way they're writing the paper and the way the knife goes in and the way the ring hits the, the, um, the, uh, the, the knife when it's kind of strapped on. That those sounds have all been amplified, you know, and they've all been amplified to make you understand what what Mark Lee's character is hearing in that moment. Time stands still apart from the ticking clock of his little, um, his, uh, his little kind of timekeeping clock that his uh, grandfather gives him. Um, you're then cutting back to Mel Gibson's character who's desperately trying to get to them to stop them. Um, that, those cutbacks are kind of impossible. You know, Peter Weir's always kind of shooting them with you know, Mel Gibson long lens across the trench you know, tw 20 people in front of Mel Gibson as he's trying to kind of waver through, those big wide shots on top of an impossible cliff with a donkey in front of him, they're juxtaposed with these sort of fatalist kind of shots of these soldiers uh, saying goodbye. And then breath, you know, the breath of Mark Lee taking that sort of final breath before he goes over, juxtaposed with the, the continuous breaths of, and the frantic breaths of Mel Gibson running through the trenches trying to get to them. And then that wonderful thing, I think, you know, which I think you know, such great filmmakers do with sound, is they take the sound out, out at the end. You know, you're expecting a kind of Saving Private Ryan moment of a kind of flurry of activity and action, and it all goes quiet, and all we can hear is the breath of him and his footsteps. And somehow amongst all of that, it becomes a very powerful moment of cinema that completely engages you with the point of view. Um, and it was those, it's, it's those sort of elements that you feel as though can just sort of fly by and you don't take much notice, but are actually subconsciously having a huge effect on you emotionally as a viewer because they're directly related to the experiences of Mark Lee's character in that, in that final moment. And I think Peter Weir's an incredible... I was watching Dead Poets Society the other day and there's a moment before the boy shoots himself downstairs after he does the play and his father forbids him from, from being an actor. Um, and there's this beautiful moment of him kind of going down to the father's den and takes out, of gun, takes out a gun and the father is about to hop into bed and, you know, the mother's crying and the father says, um, everything will be all right. And instead of sort of going to the bed and seeing the, the father and mother in, in, in bed talking to each other, he just stays on a pair of slippers beautifully kind of lined up next to the bed, you know, a kind of life of order and a, and a life of... Um, 
kind of comfort that completely is going, going to go against the, the, the sound, the tragic and, and brutal sound of, of a gun going off um, and his son's suicide. So it's, it's, he's extraordinary at kind of doing those juxtapositions and, they, and, and they, they have enormous power. I think even in Jaws, I think the way that colour palette is and the, the, uh, the kind of kid playing with the castle, um, you know, and the little sort of singing rhyme, I think, you know, usually a kind of brutality coming off something that is calm and peaceful and almost domestic is, is very, very powerful. Um, I did a lot of that with Snowtown, um, which was, a, you know, essentially about a, some murders and brutality happening in a very domestic suburban place of Australia in broad daylight. So that, to me, was what was so horrifying about the events, was just how domestic uh, these murders were when they were sort of taking place. Um, the next clip I'm going to show you is Beau Trevay, and it's, um, I was basically rejected out of film school twice, <laughs> and, and, this, and one of the exercises was that you had to show a film, you had to show a clip that you really liked and then talk about it, similar to this, and uh, the guy hated my clip, um, and it was me and this other guy, and, and I was actually going to bring up the Godfather scene where Salozzo is shot by Al Pacino in um, Godfather, and the other guy kind of put this clip up. And it's an amazing clip um, and could talk beautifully about it. Um, uh, and, and then I brought up this clip <laughs> and, and really just said that I liked the dancing at the end. Um, and it wasn't until probably three or four years later that I realised um, why I liked it. You know, what, what, what was it about it that um, within each of the frames and the, and the ideas in it that made me compelled to use it as this is why I want to be a filmmaker to a film school. Um, anyway, I didn't get in, but we'll have a look at the, have a look at the clip. So, yeah, so you can probably tell why I didn't get into film school. <laughs> but it's... Um, I just, there's just something, so, I mean, she's a beautiful filmmaker, Claire Denis, and, she, and, and, and this character, Galoup, played by um, Denis Levant, um, if you see the whole film, he's, he's an officer in the French Foreign Legion, and, and his whole life is, a, is about order and is about, um, you know, uh, a, a kind of outlook on life which is um, incredibly restrictive. And he, he makes a fatal mistake. He gets jealous in this film and... Uh, sort of causes the death of a young kid, young soldier, um, who, who becomes very good friends with his, um, his colonel. Um, and he gets expelled from the one thing that he has in life, which is to, is, is to be a soldier. So this end of the film is a kind of goodbye to, to that life, uh, life, a kind of final, um, final kind of supper with, with that life that he's led. And I just think it's kind of quite astonishing that his death, instead of playing out with a gunshot, you know, instead of playing out uh, in, a, in a melodramatic way, is done in the complete reverse. So it's, you know, the, you, you hardly, it's what you don't see in this, in this scene. It's all about the bed and the practice of kind of folding the sheets and the camera doesn't leave to go up to him. It's, a, it's about, you know, cutting it off and it's about how he folds those sheets, how he brings over the, 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 the final kind of blanket, the, the way he clasps his hands at the back that you sort of see right in the foreground as a, as a kind of viewer. Um, the birds tweet, tweeting outside, just how normal and domestic and un... Uh, I mean, there's something kind of very uh, dangerous about the scene because of that. 
you don't see his face, all you're seeing is skin and you're noticing his heartbeat. Um, you're noticing the little movements next to the gun. He's holding the gun in a really comfortable way. It's not aggressive. And then that beautiful kind of um, moment with the pulse, the little vein kind of pulsing away. And then the song coming in, Rhythm of Life. Um, and then how that kind of dovetails into this crazy kind of heaven that he goes into. I mean, if you've seen this character through the whole film and then see him dance at the end like this, it is the biggest surprise. But essentially, it's the most beautiful ending to you know that there's this life in this character, you know that, that his circumstances and his job and who he is has kind of restrained a, 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 an extraordinary um, celebration in him. Um, and I just love the way Claire kind of um, completely unexpectedly shows you that soul at the end with one shot and it's a dance piece and Denny dances unbelievably in it. Um, and it's in this sort of strange little kind of nightclub in Paris. Um, and there's something that I think is, is really bold and beautiful about it that, that um, you know, is much more powerful than if you'd played out the scene of a, of, of a suicide, literally. Again, it's point of view, her taking you into the point of view of what this man is feeling in his mind in these last moments of his life. Um, and those sort of things, I think, stay with you much, much, much more than, than, than playing it out literally, you know, as an observation. I might go on to Snowtown and Macbeth. I mean, those, those uh, are very particular clips and, and I didn't really sort of talk about them when I first saw them like, like that, but um, definitely looking back now, they've kind of, they definitely informed how I approached point of view in, in Snowtown and Macbeth. So this is, uh, this is the opening of Snowtown. Um, I'll just kind of show you and have a bit of a chat about how we got there with this. I keep having this dream where I wake up in my bed and all I can hear is this yapping. So we, we, we were editing Snowtown. We had no idea how to start this film. And, and I, I kind of wanted to do a whole lot of really boring observed shots of mundane life in this, in this uh, town to, to kind of open it. And it just, it just wasn't working and I was... I was, um, there was just shots of Jamie walking around having a hamburger or playing on the pinball machines or his wife doing the pokies and it was a really pretty uneventful opening to the film and for some reason I just had it in my mind that the audience had to be bored at the beginning of this film to kind of understand his point of view. And then uh, my brother said to me, who, who, who composed Snowtown and, and, and also Macbeth, um, that you, you, you kind of don't have an opening to the film and you don't have a point of view that you're starting with. And he said, is there any way of kind of uh, really laying out right from the beginning a very solid idea of who Jamie is and, and what you want the audience to feel for him? And I'd just been, I'd, I'd been really quite fascinated with a couple films at the time. I'd just watched The Redux of Apocalypse Now and I was really fascinated by the kind of premonition at the beginning of that film with... Martin Sheen talking about Kurtz at the beginning of the film. So we, we, we were kind of fascinated by trying to find a sense of Jamie talking about his fate and the idea of meeting a monster or having a dream about something that was beyond his wildest imaginations and somehow setting the tone of something that's going to come crashing down um, 
you know, before you start getting into the kind of characters and story. And, 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 and it kind of sets up right from the beginning a kind of sense of dread. Um, and so it was really interesting as soon as we did it. And, and actually John Bunting, the other character, the main serial killer, actually said this in the, in the film. We actually shot John saying it in the car as he was going out to the bank to possibly kill Jamie. And he says it as a kind of warning to Jamie. And it was, it was, it was something that, was, that happened through the interviews of uh, the real character, John Bunting, serial killer, where he actually admitted to someone his greatest dream would be to kill someone, put a chihuahua in their neck and then ring up the cops. You know, it's macabre and uh, kind of uh, ghoulish and, and, and kind of extraordinary in its narrative. Um, but we had John saying it and it didn't have any power. It just didn't have, have any effect. And we couldn't, we loved the, the, the idea of the story and what it bring, but we, but it just was wrong for this character to do it. It was too overt, you know, because he was saying this is a threat while Jamie was in the back of the car. So Jed and I were discussing it and said, well, why don't you give that to Jamie? Why don't you give that dream to Jamie? Because it's his point of view and it's, and, and the actual uh, image, images at the, uh, at the beginning are the points of view of the car ride out to Snowtown which becomes, at the end of the film, uh, a very, very strong uh, motif because that was the landscape that Jamie and this other boy would have seen as they were, take, as they were driving out to, to, to these killings. Um, and then at the end of the film, you somehow kind of cycle back and use the same imagery, but in a, in a very, very different way. So that, that was really interesting how, um, you know, starting a film with a really, really strong point of view um, even though most of the film is a social realist piece and you don't hear Jamie say, uh, you, you know, speak in a voiceover at all through the rest of the film, um, it seemed to work at the beginning as a kind of um, destiny, as a kind of um, sense of setting up what he was going to become, which was, a, which was a kind of killer, and the person that he was going to meet, which was a monster. Um, so that, that uh, definitely reshaped our whole film, and that came really late, like a, a, a week before we were about to lock off. Um, and definitely set the tone um, uh, of that point of view. Um, the next clip is that, that second one of Snowtown, the... Can you please go back in there with the boys? I really don't want you here. No, John, I really don't want him a part of this job. It's all right. It's all right, love. It's all right. He's a big boy. So this, I mean, this was the point of view in this scene was, was Jamie experiencing community for the first time. You know, that there was an energy that came into this place where suddenly things were going to get done and John brought this charisma and he brought this kind of can-do attitude and he, and he empowered these characters. So all those actors, apart from Dan who plays John Bunting, were all people that I cast off the streets in, in the actual town where it happened, so they had never acted before. The, this scene we did in one take. Um, and I, the reason I bring it up is, is it's quite an interesting story with it. Uh, we had like three or four cameras on because I knew that, that as soon as they started repeating the scenes, it would suddenly start to be contrived. Whereas what I wanted was a real live debate about sexual abuse in this area, which because we were in the area and we were using people that were living in the area, um, it was something that was extremely um, passionate in their lives. And, and they had a lot to say. And we, we had a, we had a um, kind of a rehearsal for that, which was basically just beer and pizzas and all of us kind of getting together. And it was to just discuss problems in the area and so forth. And a lot of the energy and a lot of some of the points that came out of that rehearsal were kind of bedded into, into this scene. But what was fascinating is that Dan, who plays John Bunting, who is a Sydney boy, 
was suddenly cast as John and had to come into an environment that's incredibly intimidating and be loved, you know, and, and have some sort of control and power over these, these people. So Dan, I got Dan to come nine weeks before we started shooting and he, uh, he's a beautiful guy too. He's, he's a lovely guy and he's got an enormous heart, but suddenly he had to play someone who was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty kind of dangerous and, and uh, aggressive and powerful. So Dan kind of arrived and it was, it was nine weeks there in the, in, the, uh, in the area and lived in a hotel. And my whole aim with him was you, you have to start um, becoming part of this community. You have to start going out and meeting people and like Lou taking her out to dinner. She was the, the, the mother there. Um, Jamie, uh, Lucas, I want you to kind of, uh, you know, go to his school every day and you know, pick him up and drop him off and take all those young kids to go fishing. You know, and I want you to go into pubs and clubs around that area and people start to recognize you and see you because that's what John Bunting was. John Bunting was, an, he was like a preacher. It was a complete opposite to what the cliche stereo, uh, serial killer is. He was very, very um, uh, community driven. Uh, everyone thought he was a good Samaritan. There weren't many people that had a bad word about John when we were researching the film because on the exterior, uh, he, was, he was doing good. You know, he was kind of getting rid of the pedophiles in the area and he was, uh, you know, helping these little families and, you know, getting someone's groceries. So, so Dan had to become kind of involved in this thing. Anyway, he kind of froze. After about four weeks, um, he didn't go to McDonald's and KFC like I told him to and put on 10, 15 kilos. He didn't kind of, uh, you know, get out there in the community and meet people and start to kind of feel an energy there. Uh, he just sort of stayed in this hotel and read books about serial killers. And it was, you know, it was really kind of disappointing. And uh, I, you know, I realized that he was incredibly scared, you know, of, of this place that he was in. Um, so we had, we, we had a real challenge to kind of get there where he suddenly felt like he could walk down a street in this area with confidence and everyone would look at him in, in a very um, powerful and charismatic way. Um, so when we did this scene, when we were rehearsing this scene, which was really just, you know, chatting about, about particular abuse in the area, Dan froze, absolutely froze, could not speak, you know, people were speaking over him. And I got, at the end of the night, after three or four hours, I got really angry with him. You know, I was kind of like, well, you know, if you're going to freeze on the day, because we only get one chance to do this, um, you're going to completely undermine the power of the character. And he was saying, I don't know whether I can do this. Um, you know, these, these issues and problems are really uh, affecting me. And, you know, and I, and I don't know whether I can kind of be guiding people in that, in that situation. And it took, took him a good kind of two weeks before we shot it to really start to understand the power of that scene and the point of view of that scene, distance himself a little bit and allow people to speak and motivate them to speak throughout the scene, but at the same time give you the impression that, that he was in control. So it was a really big turnaround for, you know, again, point of view, a, a, a guy, an actor who desperately didn't want to be in this, in this environment and in this film, was very, very intimidated by it, but then suddenly found a performance through, through being part of it, you know, and, and, and a lot of that came from these first-time actors giving him that. You know, as soon as he walked on the set, the boys would hug him and kiss him and, you know, and hang off him, and Lou would always beam when she saw him for the first time, and you suddenly realise that the dynamic of what he'd created with these people was the character. 
So we were always just bending and twisting off that a little. Um, everyone knew that we were, you know, that, that it was a, uh, a film, but there was definitely an energy there that came from Dan as an outsider suddenly taking control of a place and environment and, and having an effect on it. And, and that certainly kind of rubbed off on scenes like this where it was one take, Dan had to drive it. If we'd gone into a second take, it would have start, suddenly started to feel contrived. He had a few points he had to hit um, and then that was it. So we shot that like in four minutes, um, two cameras to make sure that we got all the coverage that we wanted. And again, it was supposed to feel, it's supposed to have an energy and it was supposed to feel as though it was Jamie's POV about community. Suddenly this world that was dead was coming alive with, with a kind of passion. Um, we might go into Macbeth, the beginning of Macbeth. So this is quite, it's quite interesting, Macbeth, because when I signed on to do Macbeth, it was, it was like there was a beginning war scene in the screenplay that was probably about 10 pages long and, uh, you know, it was very much kind of setting up the heroicism of Macbeth as a, as a warrior. And I found that really interesting and we storyboarded it and worked out how we were going to shoot it. It was going to take three weeks with 200 soldiers and we're going to do it in the middle of the moors in, in Scotland. and. And then we real I realised within the first week that that wasn't going to happen and I was going to have 30 soldiers and I had to do it in three days. And, you know, it was quite a, um, it was quite a uh, shock that, that that was what was um, being kind of proposed. Um, but it's interesting because at that time I hadn't really uh, fully investigated the idea of Macbeth possibly suffering from post-traumatic stress from a war. Um, and, and the idea that perhaps the witches could have somehow been a manifestation of that trauma. So just, just really through logistics, it wasn't anything else, I had to suddenly go point of view on it and, and how do I completely and utterly tell this story and this epic battle and understand Macbeth as a warrior uh, through him and through what he sees. And I, and I had to be very, very specific about the, the moments and the elements in that war that I wanted to highlight and heighten and somehow connect them through the witch's prophecies so that those images of violence and brutality, those little kind of moments that had defined what Macbeth was and definitely in my story wanting to set up his uh, uh, sort of post-trauma and how that works into the prophecy of the witches, I had to desperately sort of try to connect that imagery to the witches and, and kind of make it feel like it, it, it had come out of the battlefield. So th that was, I mean, that was just a really interesting way of using point of view to solve a, a, a problem that you all have as filmmakers, which is how the hell do I do this in the time that I've got and the money that I've got? And, you know, I'm still having the same, I'm still having the same challenges with Assassin's Creed. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, a you know, big budget um, uh, franchise film and, and it's never enough. It's just never enough. It, it, you know, the, the budget and the weeks never fit the ambition in your head. And you'll be quite surprised at how you go from, oh, well, if I can get 80% of what I want, you'll suddenly realise you're at 50 you know, and you're compromising half of what your vision is. But what's great about that and, and, and the way you can solve th things are through point of view. 
You know, even in, even in that clip of Gallipoli there, you never see a thousand soldiers. You know, the, the, the shots are very, very specific. It's down in the trenches. You go from one shot up the top there with the, with the gunner um, about to, um, you know, just before they go over the top and then you follow a kind of really beautiful kind of side tracking shot focusing on Mark Lee and the sound goes out. And there's just ways of creating scale and there's ways of creating uh, story and narrative um, completely and utterly through point of view if you're really, really selective about it and assured about it. You know, people won't even go, gee, that battle looks small or, you know, it didn't feel big enough or whatever. And they won't even think about that if you're in point of view. Um, and another film, Raging Bull, is a similar example of that. When you have a look at that sequence um, with La Motta, uh, um fighting Robinson, um, there's hardly any people in the crowd, you know. The, the shots are really, really selective to his point of view, what he would be seeing. Um, so, yeah, so I guess that's it. We'll open it up to questions. There's a gentleman just there. Uh, my question is, at the beginning you mentioned about going from a place where you had done music promos and a couple of short films. I'm just wondering if you could perhaps chat about how you went from that to getting your first feature off the ground and how that came about. Yeah, I was, uh, I was working in the theatre for 10 years. When I was 20, I, I became a theatre designer. And so I was around uh, a lot of directors and actors and then, and then really just became a pest to directors because I was obvious I wanted to direct. Um, and moved from that after about 10 years, in my early 30s, I moved into uh, my band. My brother had started a band and he needed a video clip and, and I wanted to make something. Uh, so we went and got some 16 mil film somewhere and we just sort of came up with a really, really simple idea and we, we did it. And that, and that was kind of it. I, I kind of got the bug um, of, of cinema and from then on it was doing uh, I did a short film for a short film festival in Australia called the Tropfest Film Festival, um, where anyone can make a film for this one night uh, that they have in Sydney. Um, and then that progressed then on to um, me wanting to go to film school. I didn't get into Australia's film school. Um, kind of devastated, what am I going to do? And then kind of picked myself up and, and um, you know, started to just keep on making things, you know? It, it really was that. It was. It's kind of around that time. I went from around that time where you could only make a film on a 16... Like, 16 mil was your, your kind of lowest <laughs> uh, budget that you could going to get away with, uh, to then suddenly, um, oh, wow, I can do this on a video. Um, so I was just on the precipice where things, production-wise, became much easier, easier to do. So from there, I then uh, made a, a couple shorts um, that then got me into commercials. Um, and I spent two years making commercials, and that's where I learned an enormous amount, craft-wise, um, uh, and working with actors. And then I was approached by Warp Films, who just started an office down in Australia, um, to to do Snowtown. And it was absolute fate. Like I, that they didn't know that I was. They were interested in me based on some video clips I'd done, and they had the same ethos as Warp here, which was like new filmmakers, new filmmakers, new voices. So I was very lucky to be around there at that time. And, uh, and then Snowtown landed on my desk and I said, wow, I come from this area. And I was living in Melbourne at the time. It was set in Adelaide. Um, and I, I, I actually lost the project. I didn't say, 
yes for about seven weeks because I was just so scared of it. I don't think so about the subject matter, just scared of making my first film, you know, kind of like, you know, judging everyone else for years and years and years and then suddenly when you have to do it yourself, <laughs> you're kind of like, I could better step up here. Um, and I think I was completely intimidated by that. But then, then it just happens and you're on and, and uh, yeah, I was just very lucky. There was a lot of timing there that worked out. Firstly, thank you very much for this. It was really, really interesting. Um, uh, could you maybe go into more about your process with actors? Because I'm, obviously your films are extremely uh, visceral and cinematic. I'm really interested as well in how you work with actors because the performances, especially in Snowtown, are so natural. And in Macbeth as well, they're very real and, and intense. And you talked a bit about doing sort of a workshop and rehearsing. Could you talk a bit more about your process with that. Do you always workshop? And were you able to do rehearsals on a film like Macbeth or Assassin's Creed, for example? Uh, Snowtown was a different experience from Macbeth because it was um, working with people who hadn't acted before. So a lot of it was about using their own experiences. And um, I didn't overly rehearse that film because as soon as we did, they'd start acting. So a lot of it was about, OK, what's the key to this scene? There might be a couple lines here and there that I need them to hit. But what I wanted them to do is, is I just wanted them to be in the moment in the scene. And in fact, Dan Henshaw, who plays John, had the most difficulty because the others were so, they knew this world so well and they knew um, the points of view so well that, that, that they, they could just effortlessly be in it. Whereas Dan, I think, have started it with, um, there's a fantastic story. Dan was once doing a take and he would, he would speak opposite Lou and then he would look out the window at the end of the take. And I kept on going, I was saying to Adam at DOP, I was going, why is he doing that? I don't understand why he's always looking out the window at the end. And Adam said, it's because he's going to a commercial, he's going to a commercial break. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he'd been in a soap for three years that they kind of teach you to like find a cut point on soaps where, you know, they can go off. And I went up to him, I said, you're doing this thing, you know, you're looking out the window at the end of each take. And he goes, it's the soap. It's like the commercial break. And I went, fuck, I thought it was. And um, you could see the other. The others would just be sort of in a scene with him and he'd look out and Lou and that would sort of look out as well. And it's because I was so involved in what he was doing. And then I said, you don't just be, you know, you just have to listen. That is the most important thing is just listen and be there and, and come off what they're giving you. And, and I think, you know, the biggest mistakes I've made, I think, with performance is too many takes you know, and too many, too much direction. You know, you have to load, you have to be really careful about how you load that cannon, you know, and then when you got it loaded, you know, in terms of kind of backstory and this is the scene and, and mood and setting, like, you know, when you walk into a space, you know, don't have people on their phones, you know, make it a sacred space, make it a space where those actors feel really comfortable um, and then just don't over direct it, allow them to find their thing. Because when you've got two actors opposite each other, listening to each other, it is, it is, it is kind of gold. And that was the same with Macbeth. Macbeth was, was very much about how do you keep <clears throat> a, a text which is incredibly well known uh, and, and, in, and has been spoken you know, millions of times. Uh, you can, I didn't want to sort of start to rehearse it like a play. I wanted to keep it very fresh for them. So we would talk about the scenes and 
you know, with Marion, Marion did like to say it a lot because, you know, for her being French, it was, the English was really difficult and there was a rhythm to it that she needed. But Michael was very much, um, I mean, Michael's process, he reads things a hundred times and then forgets them, you know, so that he's never reaching for the lines or for anything in the scene. He's always just trying to connect to, to, to the other actor in terms of what's going on right there in that moment. And I think that's, that's really important. There was one clip I was going to show you with Macbeth, which was uh, full of scorpions of my mind. And it was, Michael was really tired that day and we were, re- we were at the end of a long shoot and, you know, he was on the floor just playing with his knife and, you know, Marion was really tired. And the energy I wanted from the scene was completely different from their tiredness, <laughs> you know, and their kind of, like, boredom. Not, not in terms of them as actors in the scene, but in terms of their characters, you know, that they, these characters kind of had nothing to do. You know, they were kind of, they'd done all the killings and they were sort of sitting there bored, just sort of waiting for, for whatever. And it was just a really lovely moment where Michael was so in a world and Marion came in was so in a world that was opposite to what I thought and then they did this scene and it was just beautiful. It was just absolutely beautiful. But it came from an energy that was already there. And, and that was a little lesson I learned about just being open to whatever the truth of the day is. You know, with, if your actors are feeling tired or whatever, actually sometimes there might be something really great about that because it'll bring a vulnerability or something that goes opposite to the scene. Always be brave to flip things, you know. Don't, don't hold on to your chickens all the time. Um, I'm really interested in how you transition from a film like Snowtown to a bigger budget with like loads of special effects and how the special effects sort of affect your creative process? It's, it's kind of the same. I mean, it's, it's not... I mean, you, you, you kind of... You know, you have a series of shots you know have got special effects and I always like my effects to be really real. Um, so we do a lot of real plates. I try to make it feel as in-camera as possible. So hopefully you've got an essence. With Macbeth there was always an essence of what I wanted in the frame before I started putting in mountains or whatever. Um, and Assassin's Creed's turning out to be the same. We shot, we've shot a lot of the stunt work in Assassin's Creed uh, and a lot of the sequences uh, for real in Malta. So it, it, it has a very real feel. And I think that, that, I mean, that's something I'm just naturally interested in. Um, so your, your, your plate, what you originally shoot, you should try to get as much as possible the tone and the mood and the feel and the point of view in that plate and then let that dictate the, the, the VFX that you put over it and the tone of those VFX as opposed to the other way around. You can, you know, you can get caught up in changing too much. In the, actually, I was doing it the other day, changing too much within the original plate and suddenly it looks artificial and you go, wow, I went to Malta and shot this. <laughs> You know, and you know, I was, was on a roof the whole day watching someone jump from one roof to the other. Why does it suddenly look like it's green screen? And you, you suddenly realise I've changed too much within the frame. Uh, you just got to be really careful about what you change. Hi. I was just wondering about um, between Snowtown and Assassin's Creed, how did you find a change of creativity and control? Because one's quite big and compared to the other one, was there much? Oh, from Macbeth to Assassin's Creed? or uh, Snowtown, Snowtown to Assassin's Creed. Did you uh, find you lost control and creativity at all? Or? Yeah, it's challenging. <laughs> it's challenging because, you, you know, you're dealing with a much bigger budget and much bigger investment and you've, you, I'm also dealing with a, a, um, a brand that is already set. So there are, there's an already an audience, an expected audience for 
that film in a way. But I think, you know, I think you just, you just, you just try to, again, it's story and narrative and point of view, and that's the thing that kind of guides you, guides you with it, and then you have to communicate in the best possible way why you think that is right. You know, that's, that's, that's the effort. You just can't kind of go, you know, they don't understand. You, you, you actually have to include people and really get them inspired about choices you might be making that are testing certain conventions. Um, and I had to do that with Macbeth as well, you know, I, to, you know to, to shoot it in the way that I wanted to do it, to do the verse in the way that I wanted to do it. There were a lot of discussions, really, you know, really quite robust discussions about the, the, the approach. But I don't think you can be, I don't know, I don't think you can be an arsehole anymore in terms of just going, well, I'm a genius and you don't understand. I think that there's too much money involved and there's too much... It's, 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 it's an obligation of a director to be able to sit there and communicate to anyone why it needs to be a certain way, you know, and why the vision is going to work. So it's, I think it's a similar process. Unfortunately, I think we have to end there, but thank you all for coming. Thank you, Justin. That was the award-winning director, Justin Cazell. Thanks also to Maria Kadabai and our sponsor, EE. If you are interested in hearing more from BAFTA-winning directors, check out BAFTA's archive of David Lean lectures or hear our annual games lecture from Jade Raymond, the co-creator of the game that inspired Justin's next film, Assassin's Creed. For all this and more, head to bafta.org forward slash guru.